thank you for tuning in to Randeep's in the House, first podcast uh, hosted by me, Randeep Sarai, your member of Parliament for Surrey Centre. Today, I'm very happy to be joined by Brian Asimu from SAFE to discuss the Surrey Anti-Gang Family Empowerment Program and the larger issues of youth violence, uh, gang-related violence in Surrey. How are you doing today, Brian? I'm doing fantastic, and thank you very much for having me. This is the highlight of my professional career today. <laughs> I hope you have higher, greater highlights than this, but this is a good start. Um, before we begin, I'd like to take a moment to address, uh, as you've noticed, there's been a recent escalation of gun and gang violence in our communities. Uh, it's not just in Surrey, it's, uh, it's been in Richmond, it's been in Langley, it's been in uh, uh, North Vancouver, Vancouver, it's been uh, all across uh, uh, across uh, the Lower Mainland in the last several months. Uh, there have been many senseless uh, deaths and the scourge of gang violence uh, kind of plagued our community for far too long. Uh, many are still continuing to mourn these tragic losses, uh, one of which uh, unfortunately is, is uh, reported uh, due to gang violence. It's the youngest person in the history of our province and, and my heart stays heavy with those that have been affected, uh, his family, of course, and his friends, uh, uh, those he, he, he goes to school with. Although it's difficult to make sense of a lot of the senseless uh, acts of violence, it's clear that we all must continue to work uh, together to combat the prevalence of the issue and, and uphold public safety uh, here in Surrey. Unfortunately, this issue is not new to BC. Uh, I've been uh, uh, going to high school in, in, in Burnaby and uh, uh, watched it in South Vancouver when I practiced, uh, you know, the, the, the days when, when a lot of these uh, brazen shootings started to happen, uh, daytime, evening, uh, uh, really the flamboyant gangster lifestyle. And it's taken a toll. I've seen a lot of friends lost lives, uh, uh, had many... Uh, that went to my school or neighboring schools or people I grew up with that are no longer here. Uh, and it's affected young people, affected their families, uh, destroyed their families in some cases. So uh, the impact is really huge. Um, although we've seen some, uh, I guess, reductions in certain types of crimes, but it seems to morph and then come back in different ways. Uh, uh, you know, the flamboyant stuff of the 90s and early 2000s has changed to more younger, uh, more, uh, uh, high school or even sometimes as low as elementary school uh, focused uh, group that, that gets involved, uh, uh, which is really troubling. Um, youth gang issues have impacted our community for decades and we, we got to continue to work hard to fight them against uh, uh, them becoming the norm and people becoming numb and thinking that this is how, how society is. And community with a wide range of partners and allies, uh, I think is the way to help and form a clear picture. This is not just a policing issue, uh, an enforcement issue. It's a community issue, a social issue. And that's why I'm uh, happy here to be virtually speaking uh, with Brian today uh, uh, as, as he has been a community safety manager with uh, the city of Surrey, helping with the program coordination for SAFE, the Surrey Anti-Gang Family Empowerment Program. Uh, this program uh, uh, in January 2019, uh, along with my colleagues, uh, the Honourable Bill Blair, the Honourable Harjeet Sajjan, uh, were at City Hall to announce the $7.5 million uh, funding for the Suryati Gang Family Empowerment Centre. Uh, initially, the project was developed from the findings of a major 
uh, the mayor's task force on gang violence, of which I was a member, which released its report in 2018. Um, the program was designed, I believe, to help prevent at-risk youth from joining gangs and participating in other harmful activities by providing them with more healthy alternatives and teaching them pro-social behavior. Uh, and I'm looking forward to learning about Brian's firsthand experience uh, with the program to discuss what he's learning about this issue, what benefits the program has brought to the community, and what we can learn from the program in order to ensure our approach to addressing this crisis uh, as it evolves along with the needs and realities of those affected by the issues uh, of gang violence in our community. So Brian, what's your personal and professional experience with gangs and how did you become involved with SAFE? Yeah, well, from a personal uh, lens, thankfully, I've never been affiliated with a gang. However, uh, growing up, I, I did rub shoulders with some guys that were drifting down a dangerous path um, just by nature of, you know, going to parties, nightclubs. Uh, I would see, you know, weapons, uh, stacks of cash. Uh, and one time I even got a lift home uh, in an armored vehicle. And it actually gave me a headache looking out of the one inch thick bulletproof windshield. Um, so, uh, the good, the good news about that is that I never experienced or witnessed any violence, um, and I had many protective factors in place, uh, whether it be, you know, legitimate employment, uh, you know, participation in sports, getting accepted to university. So as I got older, I surrounded myself with like-minded, healthy individuals and, and, and didn't have any, you know, uh, risk factors uh, affecting myself um, and, and going down that path. As far as professional experience goes, um, you know, I earlier in my career for 10 years, I was a youth and family counselor. And so I supported about approximately 400 youth clients over that span. Um, and uh, four years of that was working directly within the Surrey RCMP support services, um, supporting youth that had, you know, been diverted from the court system for committing offenses. And so some of the higher risk clients that I would see through, through that program, um, you know, they had maybe involvement with dial doping you know, drug trafficking. And so that was kind of my first hand exposure uh, that way um, from, a, from a work lens. And then I went on to become um, the intervention programs manager at Surrey Detachment, uh, overseeing uh, different programs in support of vulnerable populations. And so that gave me a broader exposure. Um, you know, for example, hearing about survivors and victims of, of gang violence and, and how that impacted their lives through victim services, um, you know, and, and now overseeing all the, the youth counselors that were supporting the clients that I had previously supported. Uh, you know, just, just kind of being able to see that broader impact. And, uh, and of course, about a year and a half ago, I accepted my current position, community safety manager uh, over here at City Hall, uh, working in a parks, recreation and culture, overseeing a number of uh, initiatives to support community safety, but our flagship program being the Surrey Anti-Gang Family Empowerment Safe Program. So you've seen it from uh, uh, kind of the social community aspect. You've also seen it how enforcement, uh, you know, though you're a civilian working with the RCMP, but you probably had a lot of interaction seeing their side of the stories, also seeing the victims and also seeing those that are vulnerable that are uh, uh, that were at risk in this uh, situation. So you've had a, had a pretty good bird's eye view uh, of, of aspects from both angles, I see. Yeah. Uh, so can you elaborate on what SAFE is? Like a lot of people, uh, you know, they see the money they see uh, has been given to, to Surrey. It's uh, you know, seven and a half million dollars. And uh, can you elaborate on what the program does and, and uh, uh, how it delivers programs to address uh, youth gang violence in our community? Absolutely. And, and first, though, I just would really love to briefly kind of explain how we got to SAFE um, really quickly. And it's no secret that 
there have been times, such as right now, over the past three, four weeks, where, where we've witnessed a surge of gang violence in the Metro Vancouver region. And of course, Surrey's not immune to that. Um, despite pre-existing gang prevention and intervention programming in Surrey that was proving to be effective for the majority of its, of its participants, the reach uh, of these programs resources could only extend so far. And, and why is that? Well, it's really a numbers game. Uh, we know that Surrey has a significant youth population. It's got the largest school district in the province. And census data indicates that one in four of our residents are under the age of 19. So as you mentioned, you were part of that, that task force uh, on gang violence a few years ago, and that was where professionals, politicians, academics, uh, and community members, uh, leaders, put their heads together uh, to examine Surrey's gang issue and, and, and what could be, be, be done. And so a consensus uh, came out of that, that something new and different was needed to add to, to complement the existing uh, youth gang prevention programming um, supporting Surrey residents. And so in January, 2019, uh, the Surrey Anti-Gang Family Empowerment or, or SAFE program, I'll just refer to it as SAFE as we go along, was born. And so what is SAFE? Um, well, it's a proactive, uh, first of its kind, multi-agency approach to preventing and addressing youth gang involvement. Um, it is investing, as you mentioned, uh, $7.5 million of federal funding over five years uh, to deliver 11 individual programs, which together uh, aim to wrap services around vulnerable children, youth, and their families uh, in order to disrupt pathways um, to gang violence and, and increase family, school, and community connection. Uh, SAFE is led by the city uh, of Surrey, but it could not be delivered uh, without its nine co-funded uh, partners. And, and those partners span uh, various sectors, government, education, and nonprofit. And more accurately, uh, in fact, I would argue that um, SAFE actually involves collaboration from, from 16 partners because there are six additional agencies uh, who participate directly in one of those 11 programs, even though they're not funded under SAFE. Wow, that's insightful. So um, can you, can you this, is, this may sound like a very simple question, but uh, for a lot of people uh, who, who are not affected by it, just see it on the news and, and, and watch it in television or read the newspapers, uh, you know, their interpretation of what a gang is might be might might be different, and uh, their their reasons on why people join those gangs might be different. So, can you tell us what is a gang, and 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 why did youth join gangs? For sure, I have to be careful here because the legal definition of gang is uh, it's complicated. <laughs> Let's put it that way. So, to paraphrase a definition I've heard many times, um, a gang is really an organized group of three or more individuals whose main purpose is to commit serious acts uh, in order to achieve material gain, whether that's financial or otherwise, and, and that's for themselves or the group. Now, serious acts, of course, uh, that could include drug trafficking. Typically, that's the big one. It could be extortion, robberies, that sort of thing. Now, as far as the reasons for gang affiliation, you know, those are quite varied, right? But uh, traditional reasons that when we look around the, the world, uh, we may observe our, you know, large urban centers uh, could be poverty, intimidation, um, one's born into it, literally, family association, uh, as well as living in a high-risk uh, neighborhood and, and therefore needing protection for self-preservation. However, in the lower mainland, um, those traditional reasons aren't really at play here. Um, it's quite unique. And so local law enforcement, they've been long saying that um, the average young person involved with gangs uh, in the Lower Mainland comes from a middle-class family and, and doesn't necessarily live in a high-risk neighborhood right with gang violence. Um, so this means, uh, you know, the minority are being recruited 
to address basic needs such as self-preservation and putting food on the table for their family members. So instead, um, what we're seeing here in the Lower Mainland seems to center more around, you know, the reasons for, for gang involvement for young people is, is, is really based on the false promises of brotherhood, that sense of belonging, um, status, you know, and recognition, yeah. um, and, and fast money. Those seem to be more at play. So when a young person sees an older peer or a sibling or a cousin um, driving a nice car and, and sporting nice clothes, they look up to that person and think, well, that could be me. And, uh, and that lure of, say, you know, working at a fast food restaurant for minimum wage pales in comparison to the dividends and prestige um, that they perceive, key word is perceive, uh, are associated with gang life. So what we see is that that prospect of wealth, status, and, and a sense of belonging, particularly when combined with a lack of connection to school um, or activities, you know, like sports and that sort of thing, and, and of course, lack of connection to a healthy role model, it creates a bit of a perfect storm um, to be recruited into a game. Yeah, it is a very unique situation. I've been involved in this since kind of high school in the prevention side and even afterwards, and it always boggled uh, the minds of a lot of sociologists and people involved on why people from middle-class families, uh, uh, middle-income households, and, and, and decent households in many cases where there's no family disruption are, are getting involved in this, where typically youth violence comes from uh, uh, broken homes, uh, poverty, uh, uh, tougher neighborhoods, uh, uh, where, where you're your, your entrance into crime is a, as a mode of survival, and in these cases, they are. What are the significant risk factors uh, for youth? And in other words, what increases the chance that a school-age youth uh, will get or become involved in gangs? Yeah, very good question. Um, so I just mentioned that the Lower Mainland you know, youth involved in gangs tend to uh, become affiliated for less traditional reasons. However, um, you know, researchers have indicated that there seems to be one unifying characteristic uh, shared across the vast majority, if not all gang members, regardless uh, of where, you know, where, where they are in the world, um, and that is the experience of trauma and victimization. So, for example, a young person who's witnessed domestic violence in their household, um, maybe they've been directly victimized in, at home or, or on the street, uh, they've witnessed a suicide or they've witnessed a homicide, um, they've lived in a refugee camp. Uh, or a war-torn nation uh, before coming to Canada. These are all potential examples of what I'm referring to with regards to trauma. And, and I can confirm that each of those examples I just mentioned, we've seen all of those with safe clients. Okay. I mean, we see like certain communities and South Asians, uh, particularly as one, are disproportionately represented and impacted by this issue. And it, it's, it's also, as you said, a quite unique uh, situation to lower mainland. Uh, South Asians uh, generally around the world are, are not that involved in, in uh, gang violence or youth violence, but unfortunately in the Lower Mainland it, it is. Has SAFE identified different risk factors amongst uh, uh, cultural ethnic segments of the population and, and how, do they, how do they deal with that? Yeah, and you know what, um, sorry, I, I will answer this question and I'll loop back to your last one because there were some more risk factors I should share. Um, but as far as this question goes around the cultural piece, um, in an effort to ensure safe services are, are equitably supporting the demographic of our very diverse city here in Surrey, um, we do track where possible the ethnicity of our clients, but um, I know for, for a fact that we don't have that available for all of our clients. So but for the ones that we do, we haven't uh, identified a pattern uh, where certain uh, risk factors are, are disproportionately affecting 
one ethnic group versus another, whether it be South Asian, Indigenous, Caucasian, etc. Um, I'm not saying that, that in reality that that is the case, but um, I can't confirm that there uh, are specific risk factors affecting uh, you know different ethnic groups uh, at this time. But going back to your previous question, um, there in addition to trauma. Um, there are a number of other risk factors that if, you know, any listeners listening right now should, should keep their eyes out for, whether it be for their own children or uh, you know, neighbors or whatnot, or family members. So um, you know, just because someone's experienced trauma, as I mentioned, it doesn't mean they're gonna become a gang member, but does make them more susceptible, uh, particularly when they may feel like they need to carry uh, a weapon for protection to prevent themselves from becoming a victim again. And so um, carrying or owning a weapon, uh, whether it be a baton, a knife, bear spray, obviously a, a, a concern would be a gun, a significant concern, that's a risk factor right there. Um, and if they're, you know, their, their attitude towards violence, are they coming home with marks, uh, you know, did they support, you know, uh, retribution through violence? That would be another risk factor. A, a sudden shift in behavior and attitude is really something to watch for uh, when we're talking about, uh, you know, potential for gang affiliation. So, for example, if, if a young person, person withdraws from activities that they used to love, well, begs a couple of questions. First of all, why? And second of all, what are they doing to fill the time that they were previously doing in that healthy activity? Um, do they glamorize the gang lifestyle, uh, whether through how they talk or what they post on social media? If so, another cause for concern. Uh, a big one is a decline in school attendance or performance, um, as well as a deterioration in relationship with family members, in particular caregivers, notable risk factors. Uh, substance use, you know, it's, it's not uncommon for a young person to use substances. It doesn't mean they're going to be a gang member, but obviously that, that could be a tie-in, you know, having illicit substances. You must know somebody to get those. Um, and uh, a sudden change in peer group. You know, all of a sudden they're stopped hanging out with these healthy kids that shared like-minded activities, uh, and now they're hanging out with this whole new group that, you know, the parents have no idea who they are, and they may even be older peers picking them up, disappearing for hours on end, particularly at nighttime, uh, and returning with unexplained cash or possessions, uh, you know, where do these things come from? Nothing, we know nothing in, in life is free. So those are serious red flags. So, so to recap, obviously trauma is a big one, victimization, uh, sudden change in behavior and attitude. So for example, weapon carrying, engaging in violence, uh, withdrawing from activities, um, shifting in friend group, using substances, uh, explained, unexplained, sorry, cash and material items, uh, decline in school performance and attendance, uh, breakdown in family, uh, glamorized view of gang life, and of course, a big risk factor is just what they're born into. So if you're born into a family that either has anti-police sentiments or is involved in that sort of lifestyle, then that's going to increase their likelihood that they may also go into that lifestyle. Interesting. Now, when I at, when I grew up and I was in high school and then uh, university, uh, and you and gang violence was pretty rapid back then, and, and I and I watched it. It was predominantly men. Uh, it was predominantly boys, young men. Uh, I don't recall any uh, female getting involved or, or being a victim in terms of a, a shooting. I'm sure they might have been in the periphery, uh, but uh, now we're noticing that there there has been uh, several. Uh, uh, young women that have uh, been shot and uh, victims of gang violence, and we know there's even more that are involved. Uh, so their girls and women are not immune uh, uh, from gang violence in, in, in BC's lower mainland, and, and females often become involved, uh, I, I hear, as uh, girlfriends, but experts say they're increasingly active participants. Has SAFE identified risk factors uh, for, for different genders? 
Yeah, very interesting question. Um, typically speaking, uh, the risk factors for female youth do look a bit different. Uh, and this is why one of the 11 SAFE programs is dedicated to working specifically with female youth, uh, whether they're affiliated with gangs or at risk for uh, joining gangs. Um, some specific risk factors uh, to look out for for females include sexual exploitation, uh, as well as isolation. Uh, in addition to the ones I mentioned, sexual exploitation and isolation from family and friends. Uh, so if a girl's in a new um, you know, romantic relationship and she's withdrawing from friends, uh, family, school, activities uh, that she used to enjoy, it may be due to an unhealthy, controlling, potentially even exploitative relationship that could involve um, physical or sexual abuse. Now, human trafficking is one way that young women may be exploited by, by criminals, not so much gangs per se, but you know, unsavory individuals like, like pimps. Um, from a gang lens, uh, we're hearing that females are becoming more commonly involved in dial-a-doping uh, drug lines, you know, car side drop-offs of, of drugs, uh, as well as holding weapons and holding drugs for gang-involved males. So essentially, they're serving as you know, mules. Um, and with that said, females are usually low on the gang pecking order. So they're even further exploited than, than the male youth. Uh, and they're not immune to violence, as you mentioned, uh, either from their own partners or rival gangs, as we've seen scores of females uh, killed in the lower mainland gang conflict over the years. Uh, so, so key signs of females being gang involved, or at the very least sexually exploited, would be a sudden shift in attitude, um, a disconnect you know, to positive peers, family, and school, and coming home again with unexplained cash, clothes, purses, makeup. You know, if a girl's coming home all dolled up and she didn't tend, didn't used to look that way, that's a red flag. And also, where's this stuff coming from? If, you know, if they don't have the income to, to buy these name brand items, begs the question. And, and I can tell you that, uh, interestingly enough, the viewers might be interested in this, that 34% uh, of our chart cases are female and 38% of total safe clients to date are female. Wow. That's a very high percentage. I'm interesting to know. I was surprised but, by that also. Yeah, yeah, most people would not not look at it that way. But I have seen uh, families who who who've, uh, felt the pain of of losing their 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 young daughter or sister uh, in this in this field. We've kind of looked at the causes of how uh, somebody enters a uh, gang life and uh, or what caused them. Uh, next, I kind of want to chat about what are the effects of it. Um, so through your experience uh, with SAFE uh, and your past experience, uh, how have you come to understand the culture that is being the attraction of violence and gangs amongst school-aged youth uh, as the median age, I think, is, is like 14 that the kids are entering gang life? Well, yeah, it's interesting you say that age, actually, because the average, one of our 11 programs, and I'll talk about it later, the, the children and youth at risk table, the average uh, age is 14 and it supports six to 19 year olds. So that is the average age. Um, I think the allure of gang life has been around a long time. Uh, and although I'm optimistic that we as a society are slowly changing that through education and, and you know, opportunity for a better life through you know, efforts such as SAFE, uh, I am of the mind that the false promises um, of gang life continues to perpetuate is really what's behind this culture culture that you, that you mentioned. Uh, we know that the teenage brain um, is underdeveloped uh, and you know not until the early to mid 20s the, does the brain fully develop. We also know through science that the teenage brain is much more fearless um, and so you know young people tend to sometimes feel 
invincible. And I know for myself, as I've gotten older, I've become more conservative, whether that's not driving in the passing lane on the highway, you know, just taking an extra 10 minutes to get home at the end of the day. Um, so I think, uh, you know, that, that's another aspect of the culture is that uh, there's that, you know, fearlessness piece, nothing's going to happen to me. And, and um, they don't fully grasp the gravity of the path that they're going down until it's too late. Um, they're attracted to that prospect of fast money, status, brotherhood, which is really the shiny tip of a very ugly iceberg. And, uh, and I know from being a client or sort of being a youth counselor um, and my clients, they, they would say, whether it was drug use or anything else, yeah, my, my friend ended up in the hospital, uh, you know, psychotic episode because of drugs or, or whatever, but that won't happen to me. And similarly, yeah, yeah, these people are getting shot, but that's because they didn't know what they were doing. That won't happen to me. So I, I think when we have the, this, this culture of, um, you know, this, this allure, these false promises of gang life, that has really put the blinders on. Um, and, and, that, and, you know, the lies are being fed to them and, and, they're, and they're, they're going with that. So what does being involved with a gang mean for a young person's life? Uh, you know, how's their school, time spent, relationships? What activities does a, a person who's involved in gangs uh, engage in? Yeah, okay. Um, well, well sa sadly, uh, school-aged youth are the grunts of any criminal organization. They're, they're the most expendable. Uh, they're the most exploited. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're low on the pecking order. So they're put in harm's way on a constant basis. Literally, they're being the boots on the ground. Um, so they're doing the drug sales, right? The dial of doping, sometimes putting in 10, 12-hour shifts when most of us are home asleep. Uh, and so it's not uncommon for them to be away from home for days at a time. I remember, you know, many clients that they couldn't even locate them. They were couch, couch surfing, you know, and they'd come back after four or five days. Um, and so, you know, they admire and undoubtedly fear the leaders of, of, you know, the gang and they'll likely do whatever they can to impress, uh, earn the trust, earn the respect, um, whether that be carrying weapons, carrying drugs, selling drugs, and, and potentially even engaging in violence. So, uh, you know, I don't have a full-fledged, uh, you know, idea of what the schedule looks like in, in a young person's day involved in a gang, but, you know, they're, they're out on boots on the ground, literally on the street, um, you know, putting in work. Um, you know, a, a lot of people uh, who don't have experience uh, uh, with SAFE or programs like SAFE or other agencies or even how somebody gets help, uh, you know, uh, let's visualize somebody who's, uh, eventually comes to be uh, uh, a client of SAFE or somebody SAFE is there to help, where do they end up going through before they end up coming to SAFE? Usually, where do you, where do they find out about you? Where do they uh, turn? Do they, is it after they get arrested? Is it when they get in trouble from their principal? Is it family that finds out some of those signs, like you said, when you're getting um, fancy purses or uh, expensive clothes or coming in late. Uh, how do they how do they come in contact uh, uh, and who do they come in contact with before they get involved with safe? Yeah, I think I think you answered the question for me. All all of the above: uh, family, uh, professional, school, law enforcement. But I can think of a young person. Um, who was involved in a violent exchange in the community. And I don't want to share too many details to protect their identity, but they had so many risk factors going on for them, but they flew under the radar. And so they weren't on in the purview of law enforcement. They weren't really known to the school district uh, being, uh, you know, troubled. Um, and, and I don't think the family had a clue either. So 
So it wasn't until this incident happened, and actually there wasn't police uh, involvement for the incident per se, but it came out in the wash a little bit later. Um, this individual was, you know, through contacts, personal and professional contacts, was raised at um, our chart table, and then that's how services, you know, were distributed. And to my to my knowledge, this individual and their family uh, are receiving safe services today. So. You know, speaking more broadly, as I mentioned, we have, you know, up to 16 cross-sectoral funded and non-funded partners, and they all have their tentacles, right? Uh, the school district alone has 10,000 staff. So um, when you have that many, you know, boots on the ground, keeping your eyes out, keeping your ears out, very few kids, I think, go under the radar, which is a good thing. Um, and, and we're able to really do a good job of identifying, you know, A, who, who needs help and B, what sort of help do they need? While we're there, can you tell us what are the, the, the other nine organizations that work with SAFE that are funded by SAFE and uh, under this umbrella, uh, uh, the, under the umbrella of SAFE and, and funded by this program? So somebody comes to you, uh, uh, gets word of you through family, friends, an agency, police, teacher, et cetera. Uh, what are the, the, the 10 agencies, uh, including yourself, that they'll end up or have the option of getting those support services? Yeah, for sure. Briefly. So, so the, yeah, the, the agencies, obviously the city of Surrey, um, Kwanlun Polytechnic University, KPU is one of our 10 partners, uh, but they're kind of more behind the scenes involvement. And I'll, I'll, I'll share more about that later. Uh, we also have options, community services, uh, one of the not-for-profits that operates in Surrey. Well, we have um, uh, the Surrey RCMP. Uh, we have Progressive Intercultural uh, Community Services or PICS, uh, if anyone's familiar with that acronym. We have Diversity uh, Community Resources Society. Um, we have the Surrey School District, and um, we have Pacific Community Resources Society, uh, PCRS, um, and we have Solid State uh, Community Industries. So those are, I think I got all 10. Okay. Uh, now, this is the, the question that everybody asks, and, uh, you know, besides enforcement and stopping the gang violence and those that are already involved, the real key, and I think this is going to be the, the, uh, uh, the real real solution to uh, solving gang violence is how do we, what are protective factors and how can we use them uh, and, uh, and the understanding of them to prevent young people, uh, particularly serious youth, from getting involved in youth violence or gangs? Yeah, for sure. Protective factors are, are characteristics in a young person's life that, that make them more resilient uh, to risk factors. And as a result, will disrupt pathways you know, to gang involvement. So examples could be uh, participation in a supervised after school program, uh, sports, uh, you, know, you know, music, drama, uh, volunteering, or, or quite simply, just a, a young person actually cares about their grades so they go home and get their homework done. So, so there, I, could, I could list off tons, but protective factors uh, are, are things that insulate, protect a young person um, from the risk factors. Uh, and, and so they're really quite unique based on the, the individual or based on their interests, based on their values, um, but they can be strategically cultivated uh, by safe partners. So, so some examples of that. Um, I, I know that uh, we had a partner who, there was a family that had, you know, that was underprivileged, didn't have a lot of money, couldn't, couldn't afford to get uh, their young person into organized sports. So one of the partners was able to pull it into a, uh, um, some funding opportunity and a grant and get that youth involved in registered into hockey. We had another young person, same scenario, really into music. There was a bursary that uh, got that person piano lessons. 
and you know, one of our programs, you know, build leadership skills in, in peer mentoring for, for older youth, basically give an opportunity to, to mentor younger youth. So that just creates leadership skills and makes them feel good about themselves. Um, and then, you know, some youth have been connected to paid skill building and, you know, employment programs to really, A, they're getting money, B, they're learning skills and, and C, they're, they're expanding their resume. So, so those are just a handful of what's many, many more ways that protective factors can really be um, strategically cultivated, you know, case by case. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So those are little things sometimes that we don't take, we, we, some take for granted, but, but, uh, uh, extremely important to, to prevent young people from getting involved. You just said uh, asking about grades and making sure uh, somebody's on top of them about their marks and grades and making them want to get good grades uh, to to uh, foster that uh, appreciation and others are, are simply just a matter of being in sports. Uh, you also think on that note that that having parents watch sports or being involved in sports versus uh, just paying and dropping them off in sports uh, has a factor to do. Uh, I mean, I know from my own experience, my my son uh, would know if I'm playing on my phone or texting or calling when watching him in a hockey game versus I'm watching him. I mean, he could he would tell me, and I, I have no clue how he could tell, but he's a goalie, but it seems like he had eyes behind his head and he was able to tell uh, how many times I was looking at my phone. But the real gist of that was that they they want you to be watching and uh, I noticed that they actually care for you to be at their games uh, even though sometimes they may say oh you know I don't want you watching or they might be shy but they really do want your appreciation does that play a factor have you seen that as a as something that uh, uh, some youth have shown that uh, you know they didn't get that appreciation or maybe their parents were working too much and not able to come and watch them uh, uh, play sports or arts or etc yeah, thank you for, for, for using that example. And, and tell your son, you better focus on the puck. But, yes. uh, <laughs> but no, and you're 100% correct. And in my own experience, I, I can you know, tell you the same thing. And one of my, my children is always looking over the shoulder to see, did you see that? Did you see that? And um, yeah, no, they, whether they admit it or not, absolutely, they, that is important to them. Um, and yeah, the phone, I think these days is a big issue. Uh, a lot of parents on the phone not paying attention. Uh, that's not good. Put that down. Um, Get, get involved in their interests. Uh, you know, here's an example. You may hate, you know, I like hip hop myself, you know, 90s hip hop is my favorite types of music. But um, if, if, if your kid wants to listen to their music in the car, whether you hate it or not, take that opportunity, get to know some of the lyrics, ask them, hmm, did you hear what they just said? What do you feel about that? A, it's gonna, it's gonna establish some dialogue. B, you're gonna start to understand what they're, what, you know, what they're passionate about. And uh, maybe you actually like it. So that would be even, even cooler. Um, so yeah, I think taking an interest, you know, spending time is a huge thing. I, I, you know, that's that's not rocket science, and it's not easy to do. I know we're all busy with work and stress and, and whatnot. Uh, you know, I got renovations going on at home. I've got a job. I've got this. I've got that. But you know what? Family is more important than anything. And uh, regardless of talking about the gang topic, just in general, family is more important than anything, and that should be your number one priority. So your 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 music point on, your point on music was actually bang on. I. Uh... <laughs> I started uh, doing that. I accidentally played my children's playlist on Spotify rather than mine. And then I started encouraging them to play. And I found out a lot of the stuff that they listened to is, wow, it's like, you know, where, where my generation I thought was bad. This is way worse. But it, it, it did open dialogue. I was able to talk to them, uh, uh, both my, my daughters and my son, uh, uh, and what's wrong with it, what's okay with it, and how other ways you can express it. And how you can still like the music, but maybe look at, look for different artists within that um, 
genre of music and uh, uh, and then see how it affects people. Like, is it is it an appropriate way to to uh, uh, to categorize people or or, or or define people. So different music obviously does that, but it, it actually opened a good conversation, which had I not, I had no idea uh, what they listened to because nowadays almost everybody has AirPods or or Beats or something like that, that, that they, and they walk around so you don't hear it as opposed to a, a stereo or, a, or, a, or in the car even necessarily, but it's very important to know that. Let's go kind of on to uh, kind of, uh, more wrapping things up, but also seeing the solutions in this. Can you describe the kind of the impact, the hopefully positive impact that SAFE has had in the community, uh, uh, what it's done and maybe maybe uh, let our listeners know uh, on what SAFE has been doing? Yeah, and I think this will probably try to spend the most time on this topic because really that's the most important part of this podcast, I would argue. So uh, I'm going to look at my notes here to share some stats because I think they're relevant. Um, we won't be... Um, SAFE won't be externally evaluated until 2024 when, you know, after the five years cycle is done. And uh, so, so we won't know for sure um, how, we've, uh, how we've done so far. But early indications are promising um, just based on the data we do have available to us. So we're currently in the process of our next reporting cycle, um, which is due the end of this month. Um, so I can share SAFE-wide metrics as of the end of June 2020, uh, meaning that SAFE had been in operation uh, for 18 months. Uh, or 30% of the five-year cycle. So during this time, we've had uh, 1,460 separate children and youth clients uh, supported, which represents 31% of our five-year target of 4,700, which, you know, 30% of the way through the, mm -hmm. through the five years, 31% of the way through our target, we're on track. So that's positive. Uh, on top of that, uh, we have supported 269 separate parents and caregivers and we provided culturally sensitive support, such as counseling and one's preferred language to 243 total clients. As, as far as reducing risk uh, for gang involvement, data from our chart table, one of our 11 uh, programs, indicates that 149 of the 243 cases accepted to date have been concluded um, with the majority of those, 57%, uh, closed as connected to one or more services. Now, really quickly, it's important to know what that means. Um, when a case is closed, it doesn't mean services end. It just means that their risk has been mitigated to a point that they don't need to stay open uh, for the purposes of the chart table. Um, so what this essentially means is that a minimum of 85 children and youth have already experienced a significant reduction in risk for gang involvement. And that doesn't include all the clients that are still actively being supported through the, you know, the chart table. So, so that's really, to me, that's really promising. And of the, if anyone's curious, what about the other 43%? Well, of the other 43% uh, closed cases, 25%, one in four, were closed as a result of, of declining services or withdrawing consent. Um, and the remaining 18% um, were closed for a number of other reasons, such as moving, literally moving out of Surrey. You know, when that happens, we try to connect uh, that family to services in, in the destination city. Um, so, so I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty excited about what we've achieved so far, and, and uh, maybe I'll have an opportunity now to kind of talk about all the individual programs and you know what they're kind of doing one at a time. Sure, and do that also just a simple kind of maybe walkthrough of, of uh, how, how do you uh, reclaim something, uh, how somebody comes in, uh, calls you, it might be a parent saying my son's involved or my daughter's involved, or it might be uh, uh, one of the gang agencies and the police saying this person wants to exit and comes approaches you. What's a typical uh, you know brief assessment program look like for somebody who'd enter your program? 
Very good question. Well, uh, we do have 11 different programs, so it really depends on the avenue they, they went through. They don't necessarily reach out to the city as a starting point, although they can. Um, so what I, would, what I would say is that ultimately we have a, a plethora of subject matter experts, uh, aces in their places, I like to say, mm -hmm. and, and who do what they do very well. And so by nature of, of each partner, um, having a deeper understanding, not only of who does what, but also how to contact them, um, SAFE has really accelerated silo bridging efforts in Surrey. So this means faster, uh, more effective service delivery for clients, and, and I would hope greater professional satisfaction for partners. So when a client comes to agency ABC uh, with issue XYZ, uh, that professional uh, can pitch other services that they're aware of by nature of being a part of this bigger team um, and just say, hey, I know uh, this worker that could do this for you guys. You think that would be a good service for you? Oh yeah, let's let's try that out. And so instead of having one service or one agency trying to do everything, they're able to be the starting point to bring them in. And, ch and Chart's probably you know, the, the number one way to do that uh, because everybody attends our Chart meetings every Wednesday afternoon. And that's okay. a good meeting of all the heads. Uh, and then they go back to their, their duties uh, after they leave. And, and just to be clear, I'm not suggesting that there wasn't collaboration in Surrey before SAFE. Of course there was, mm -hmm. I know that for a fact, I was a frontline worker, but I can tell you, attest to this 100%, it was nowhere near this coordinated or efficient. Well, it's good to know. Uh, so, what are the uh, what is the what is the safe center? Uh, you know, uh, you're 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 building your space in Kwantlen. Uh What what does that provide? What is that? Yeah, I'm broadcasting from the safe center as we speak. Um, the safe center is is where safe program governance, uh, reporting, uh, research, and evaluation is based out of. Uh, it's located in the Kwantlen Polytechnic University, the KPU campus in North Surrey, <laughs> adjacent to Surrey City Hall. Um, it's not a publicly accessible space, uh, but it does have meeting rooms um, that can be booked by our partners at no cost, um, but because it serves as also a collaboration hub uh, for professionals. And so that supports community safety enhancing functions, uh, whether it be workshops, trainings, focus groups, professional meetings, and more. Um, so in its first 20 months, of operation. Uh, the SAFE Center has hosted 348 functions, uh, supporting just over 4,400 visits by professionals. And there's been some really neat initiatives that have come out of this space, whether it be research, building a website, um, focus groups for healthy relationship campaigns, and, and so many, so many other examples. So that's the SAFE Center. Cool. So can you highlight some of the uh positive work that some of these 10 agencies have done just so our listeners uh, can see what 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 does one of these agencies do and some some uh, some stories you can share maybe uh briefly yeah yeah for sure so i think we know what the city of surrey does is, as far as administrating the program yeah. now we spearhead two of the 11 programs i just mentioned the safe center um and that's where kpu one of the partners ties in the other program uh, that i mentioned is the children and youth at risk table or chart uh, which takes place at the Safe Center, and it involves you know all of our partner agencies, including the non-funded ones, um, collaborating weekly uh, to identify vulnerable children and youth aged six to nineteen uh, in order to implement uh, tailored multi-agency intervention plans that support the youth, the child, but also the family as well. Um, so uh, as I'll move into the, to the next uh, one of the next uh, partners. That's Options Community Services. Uh, they lead two of the eleven programs as well under Safe. One of them is called the South Asian Family Strengthening Team uh, and the other, the High Risk Youth Justice Program. Um, for the first one, South Asian Family Strengthening Team, 
by the way, I should mention it's delivered in partnership with Pacific Community Resources Society. It supports South Asian families, uh, particularly caregivers of youth at risk for gang involvement. And it can provide services in a client's preferred language uh, in the community, in the client's home, of course, not right now, but typically speaking. Um, and, and, uh, and as far as a, a success, I guess you could say, um, the program has seen a significant number of clients, um, again, particularly caregivers, and they're doing great work. I can confirm in one case, uh, a youth disengaged from gang life, secured full-time legitimate employment, and got back into school because of this service. Now, the high-risk youth justice program also supported uh, by options that provides mentorship. It's more or less, you know, kind of youth outreach to high-risk children and youth. Uh, it takes on the bulk of SAFE's needs for this outreach to teenagers. So, so the workers are very busy keeping up with the demand. Um, this program has been a success with the majority of its clients and have, uh, majority of the clients have reported back um, that the engaged, you know, the youth is engaged, is having better school experiences, increased self-esteem, you know, communication at home is, is, is stronger, those sorts of things. So we're seeing a lot of, uh, a lot of positive results through options this program. The Surrey RSMP, another one of our partners, they lead the Family and Youth Resource Support Team, or FIRST with a Y. Uh, FIRST pairs counselors with a police officer uh, from the youth section, and they intervene with specifically nine to 13-year-old youth, uh, children, and uh, who are showing early signs of, you know, criminal or potentially gang involvement. And they typically can support community school and home outreach as well, and, you know, the public health order is lifted, um, with one of the counselors applying a focus on Indigenous clients. Uh, although COVID has made their outreach challenging, uh, in the reporting period completed just prior to the pandemic, um, first completed 143 home visits, 101 in-school visits, and 22 off-site visits, off visits, sorry, supporting a caseload of 50 children and their families. Uh, the next uh, partner I want to highlight is uh, Progressive Intercultural Community Services, or PICS. Um, they lead the Intercultural Family Intervention Program, which is a culturally sensitive program that assesses the needs of families in order to facilitate appropriate referrals to specific services or uh, provide direct counseling and practical support themselves, such as navigating systems, completing forms, that sort of thing. One of the assets that PICS brings to the team is their flexibility to support clients outside of you know, the nine to five Monday to Friday. Uh, and client testimonials have indicated that having a worker able to speak in their preferred language and be available when they're needed has been extremely helpful in a number of ways. Uh, Diversity Community Resources Society, they, uh, they and Simon Fraser University provide clinical counseling. Uh, diversity does it from a culturally sensitive lens because they're able to support uh, you know, clients in a variety of preferred languages. Um, and so Simon Fraser University and diversity will, will basically divvy up clients based on where they live or, or you, know, um, you know, what their needs are so that we don't have to enter into a wait list. Um, both agencies are kind of half of one of the 11 programs under SAFE doing one-on-one -on -one and family counseling. Um, like any sector, staffing turnover can present its challenges, yet these two partners always find a way to get things done. Um, in the first year of SAFE, 77 families were supported uh, between these two programs, resulting in um, stronger communication and healthier stress and, and, and anger coping skills at home. And we know that that's crucial because the vast majority of chart cases have the risk factors of breakdown of family unit and weak parental attachment, which puts a youth at risk of looking outside of the family, such as a gang, for belonging. Um, our next partner is uh, the Surrey School District, uh, who also leads two of the 11 SAFE programs, uh, including the Peer Leadership uh, Program and uh, the Caregiver Education 
and clinical counseling program. The peer leadership program uh, involves high school youth mentoring, you know, elementary and middle years aged children to ease their transition to high school, uh, as well as develop leadership skills. So the program supports and encourages uh, participants to undertake a variety of activities, whether it be recreation, uh, creative arts, that sort of thing. Uh, in the first year of the program, 404 youth participated. 60 of those were the peer mentors, and the remaining were the younger students, the mentees. Um, and, and school district staff have observed several peer mentors transform from troublemaker uh, to leader, which is really wow. quite powerful to witness. Uh, the caregiver education and clinical counseling program that provides parents and caregivers with you know structured educational sessions in order to build healthy family relationships um, and of course they can also refer in-house to clinical counseling as well another clinical counseling option uh, and just one of their successful cases one mother and child relationship uh, is extremely it's much more harmonious uh, than prior to program participation and, and and school district knows this because it's manifested itself in a drastic reduction in phone calls from the parent to the uh, support worker when there's been conflict between the child and, and the youth. So there's much less conflict taking place. Um, we have Pacific Community Resources Society or PCRS. They lead the female youth gang intervention program. I mentioned that earlier, uh, that specifically focuses on um, you know, female youth aged 12 to 19 um, <clears throat> who may be in unhealthy relationships <clears throat> or they may be at risk of or being involved in gangs. Uh, in one case, a youth was able to get to the place with their support worker where they finally internalized the need to leave the gang life um, due to broken promises and debt. Uh, so with staff support, she was able to recognize her self-worth and that the relationship she had with her boyfriend was unhealthy. Uh, and last but not least, um, we have Solid State Community Industries, who I'm literally looking at through my window as we film right now across a couple blocks away. And, and they lead uh, the Youth Hub for Cooperative Enterprise. And uh, this program is really neat. It, it helps newcomer, newcomer and racialized youth start their own co-ops, which are democratically run businesses that provide youth with life skills and while endeavoring to, to change existing narratives uh, surrounding newcomer youth in Surrey. This program's really cool because it's essentially creating young entrepreneurs that may one day become leaders in Surrey's business community. And when Solid State started with SAFE, they had three co-ops. Today they have 16 and they're supporting just under hundred youth. Um, so for a small not-for-profit, they are really hitting it out of the park. Uh, and in fact, this spring, uh, the city is getting ready to launch a website that parents and uh, for parents that enhances uh, the SAFE program. And we're able, we were able to contract one of the 16 co-ops, Mavens Media, to create an animation for our website. So that was, you know, extra cool. Uh, so if anyone wants to learn more about these programs, they can go to our website, www.surrey.ca slash SAFE. And they can also reach out to my team, which our contact info is there. Well, thanks, Brian. I, I mean, I've visited uh, uh, Solid State and I've seen some of the entrepreneurial programs. It's, it's very exciting to see young kids, a lot of them uh, that could have been at risk and, and now uh, uh, creating business ideas, developing um, social enterprises. Uh, they're doing great work. Um, now, always we, we face, uh, we see organizations and they always have some challenges sometimes. And uh, one of the reasons that SAFE was made was to, to be an umbrella, uh, kind of an organization that kind of uh, sees a holistic approach, uh, a wraparound so, uh, support. I know when the RAP program with, with this uh, Surrey School Board, uh, it, it had some limitations. For example, kid drops out, not eligible for the program. Kid graduates, program ending, ends because it's only while they're in school they can 
capture or facilitate services. And, and, and in your case, it seems like you could have more. But what, um, what obstacles are there? This is more for my help uh, uh, than others uh, on, uh, on delivering some of these programs or services uh, to prevent or intervent uh, at-risk youth. Well, I know this might be the you know, low-hanging fruit, but the current big obstacle right now is the pandemic. But but uh, we're all the partners are doing a really good job of finding really uh, creative workarounds. If anything, um, the the collaboration, which was already strong, became even stronger over these past ten months. And I could give you tons of examples why, but I'm sure we're over time for that. But um, as far as uh, you know, seven and a half million dollars over five years is a lot of money. So I'm not suggesting that the the funding was inadequate, but no, hindsight's always 2020. So when you you plan something out on paper and, and, and you know you talk it through, uh, and then you see it in reality, it's it's bound to have okay. Well, this is still a gap. And so one of the gaps we've identified um, is we don't have a lot of outreach um, capacity. So there's lots of great you know clinical counseling. There's lots of great support for you know families in general. But to have that you know in the community when the pandemic's not here, outreach you know shooting hoops, uh, you know going you know, for a walk with the Slurpee, whatever it might be, those sorts of workers we do have, but it'd be nice to have more. And so, um, you know, with more funding, I guess we could do that. Um, but, uh, but I have to say that, you know, I'm pretty pleased so far uh, with, with, especially again, during, given this pandemic, what we've been able to, you know, to keep, keep things moving forward and, and, and keep identifying and more importantly, supporting the vulnerable populations. Well, I, I, I really agree with you on that. I, I remember in some of my other work, uh, uh, we funded a Newton Hoops, which was a, a pro program, just as you suggested, just uh, where RCMP officers uh, uh, play basketball with uh, uh, vulnerable kids in the, on, on a Friday, Saturday night. And uh, it was sponsored privately uh, uh, and, and, and with community money, but it was a very effective uh, program. But those type of programs, if you ever uh, come across them or, or somebody wants to deliver them and they're looking for the funding or avenue, please uh, feel free as, a, as your elected officials to, to come to us, to lobby us or to, to, to let us know. And we'll try to find uh, whatever pockets of money or funders uh, that, that can do that. Um, any other recommendations you have uh, for for me as a locally elected representative, uh, how we can improve uh, uh, services and how we can prevent uh, young people from getting involved? Not, uh, not so much that, but I would say that I, I do get a lot of questions from partners around what happens after December 2023. What happens at the you know month 61 when this five years of funding is up? And so fortunately, we're, you know, we're not quite even at the halfway mark and we still got lots of time to extend or even expand funding. I also am cognizant that uh, this is probably not the time, uh, you know, given, you know, the, the billions and billions of dollars that need to go out to support our country right now to be, to be asking for more money. But um, I think if there's a way that influential leaders like yourself, like people here with the city and, and, and different folks that can get together to say, look at what SAFE's accomplished already or you know, a year from now, look what we've accomplished. We can't have this, it's counterintuitive. This program's effective. Our, our population continues to grow. There is no way this program can stop. So we gotta make sure it keeps going. Um, and so I think that's really the big ask is, you know, strategically, how can we make sure that Surrey stays, you know, near the top of the list, if not the top of the list as, as a needy community that, you know, we're doing good things, Let's keep this afloat and let's keep it going. Let's make it even better, quite frankly. 
Um, so I think that's the, really the big, the big ask. And anything that you can do to, to you know, represent Surrey um, through your channels, we'll be much appreciated. No, we, we want to make Surrey a model, uh, definitely uh, something that uh, other cities look up to and how it's done right. Uh, uh, Minister Bill Blair, uh, Public Safety Minister, has said this actually, uh, that Surrey is a model. This new SAFE program is, uh, is something that other cities are now replicating across the country or trying to replicate. Um, we were able to get it in the fall economic statement, uh, $250 million in additional funding uh, for these type of programs going forward so that uh, there is no start and stop in these programs. We want these to continue. Uh, uh, we think the success of them is not one, two, three years, but five, 10, 15 years uh, in the making. And, and we need those programs and those support networks for, for our youth so they're always there. I want to thank you, uh, Brian, uh, for joining the show today. Uh, this is my first podcast, and I want to thank all the listeners uh, uh, for tuning in. And uh, uh, Randeep in the house will continue, and uh, we'll try to get more uh, important stakeholders uh, from Surrey and around the, the area to share their views, to talk about their issues, and uh, to help make Surrey the best place to live, learn, work, and play. So thank you, Brian, and thank you all the listeners. Thank you very much, and hopefully we get more uptake based on this podcast. Absolutely.